You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. So I was talking to some people, I believe in our small group in the last couple weeks, about the television show Lost, um, which came out about a year after I graduated from college. And I don't miss much about network television, but I do look back fondly on watching that particular show with my friends. It was before the days of streaming services, so we couldn't watch it at our own convenience. So we'd set aside time and we'd gather together around the television, and it was a show that was filled with mysteries and suspense. Most weeks raised more questions than they answered, and cliffhangers at the end of each season assured that we would tune in for the next. And we'd talk about the show in between episodes, anticipating what was going to happen, trying to figure out how these mysteries could possibly be resolved, and wondering how the writers were possibly going to resolve all these questions in the end. Um, Spoiler alert, they didn't. Um, They didn't resolve all the questions. They left a lot of things hanging, but it was still a good experience. It was good to sit with a community of people and sit with the tension of those unanswered questions with a community of friends. The Psalms invite us to sit in that same sort of tension. Our text for today is going to come from the the Psalm that we recited together. Um, And they... they're waiting, they're sitting in a place where where there's still so much wrong with the world. There's still sin and judgment, and they're waiting to see how God will one day set things right. This phenomenon is not only found in the hard questions that are asked within the Psalms, but also in the interplay between them. We're accustomed to thinking of the Psalms most often, I think, as standalone poems. But there's a structure to the overall book as well. And there are times when the question asked in one psalm is not actually addressed or even partially answered until a later one. And that's certainly the case with our psalm for today. There are five smaller books that mark the divisions within the psalms. And the psalm we recited today, Psalm 90, is the first psalm in book four in the psalms. And many of the questions that Psalm 90 is addressing here at the beginning of book four, are actually first raised at the end of book three, where they are left unresolved. So if we're going to fully understand the Psalm 90, I think first we have to sit with the tension that is generated in Psalms 88 and 89. Psalms 88 and 89 are probably the darkest point in the entire Psalms. Um, Psalm 88 is a cry for help a lament, which is not uncommon in the Psalms. It begins, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. It's a sincere prayer in a time of need. But the Psalms and the Bible as a whole are realistic about our plight. Though there is a sincere cry to God, a desire for him to save, there is no immediate answer. The psalmist does not feel God's presence. He continues in the middle of the psalm. He says, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. It's not a complete absence of God where he, where he can't experience him at all. It's, 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 in fact, it's even worse than that. He feels God's presence, but he feels the wrath of God 
not his salvation. He doesn't have the hope that he, that he would like to see. Instead, he feels the wrath, the weight of God's judgment upon sin. I think most of us would like to believe that if we cry out to God in a sincere, God, I, I want your salvation, I want your hope, I want this to be, I, I need this, that he would answer and say yes and give it to us. But it's not always the case, at least not in our own timing. Sometimes we cry out and hear a deafening silence in return. Or we cry out and all we feel, we long for grace, but what we feel is God's wrath turned upon us. The Psalms recognize that. They don't try to sugarcoat the difficult times that we all experience in trying to walk in a life of faith. But usually, most of the Psalms of lament turn and they point beyond the darkness to a time of hope. Not so in Psalm 88. Here's the last few verses of Psalm 88. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. There is no turn in Psalm 88, no, no moment where the complaint of the psalmist shifts into praise. All he feels from God is wrath. He feels abandoned, left in utter darkness, alone, without even a friend to comfort him. Psalm 89, the follow-up psalm, opens as if perhaps it's going to resolve some of this tension. It begins as a hymn of praise celebrating God's covenant with David, but it too turns before the end, not from turning from praise into, into a, a moment of joy, it turns I mean, not turning from darkness into a moment of joy. It actually turns from what begins to sound like praise into a further complaint against God. In verse 38 in Psalm 89, it shifts and says, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. The psalmist had, had put up this sense of hope, perhaps, in the covenant with David and in God's anointed that in there there will be I will experience the goodness of God. And instead he says, no, you've just cast me off. I stand before my enemies and I have nothing. It ends by asking a series of questions and followed by a plea for God to remember his people. Hear how this psalm ends. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man? What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. If you're reading along in your own Bible, you also probably see a, a little 
ending there that says something like, blessed be the name of the Lord, amen and amen, because it's the ending of the book. The psalm itself doesn't end really on a note of praise. It's the, the whole book of psalms ends on a note of praise. But it is this experience of utter darkness. Between Psalm 88 and 89, we have this complaint against the God as an individual. The individual psalmist feels completely abandoned. And then he looks to the community, perhaps, for hope. Maybe in the, in the covenant people of God. Maybe in there I can find hope. And instead he sees God's promises seeming to be dashed and unfulfilled that there is nothing for him either alone or in the community of God's people. It leaves the psalmist under the weight of God's wrath, just asking how long will this wrath endure? Does God even understand the fragile nature of humans? Is he truly a God of love, and will he really keep his promises? up here from me and from others, I'm sure you've heard many times, reminders of God's faithfulness. You know of the hope that we have in Christ. And all of that is true. But it's important to know this, that if you choose to follow God, there will be times when he feels distant. There will be times when it seems like your cry to him is unanswered. Or when all you feel from him is wrath when you can't understand and see what he is doing. The life of faith is not an easy choice. And the psalmist recognized, the psalms recognize the full weight that we feel as people trying to walk in faith. They can give you a voice in that times, in, in those times when you don't know what else to pray. They can show that, you're, you, that your experience is common to God's people, that you are not alone in feeling alone when you're not alone and wondering where God is or what he's doing. And they can also help you to take a step from that place of darkness into hope. Psalm 90 takes the first step on that journey back to hope. It opens by remembering the long-standing relationship between God and Israel and God's eternal nature. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Whenever God seems to be silent, whenever we are struggling with what's going on in the world around us, there are two basic questions that arise. Can God help me? Is he powerful enough to do so? And then if God is able, will he help me? Does he care enough to do so? The psalmist shows no doubt that God is able to help his people. He looks back and remembers that God has done so in the past. And this is an important element of faith in those dark times. We look back and we remember the stories of how God has helped his people in the past. Psalm 90 is the only psalm in the entire book of Psalms that is inscribed as a psalm of Moses. And while it's not entirely clear whether this is a dedication that was written later or if this is ascribing authorship to Moses, either way, it reminds us and brings us back to remember God's faithfulness in the story of the Exodus. In that moment, at least, God's people cried out and he answered. He delivered them from, their, from the sorrow that they felt, from their, the judgment that they were under. 
But God's timing is not always the timing we would desire. That might be the understatement of the year. And in this, his eternal nature is really not any comfort to the one who needs help now. The psalmist recognizes this. In verse 3, he says, You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. Compared to God's majesty, compared to his eternal nature, we are frail beings. A thousand years to God is nothing, a mere blip of time. But if he waits for a thousand-year day to help us, it might seem to be too late. This is not just a concern either about a God who's idle or not paying attention, that perhaps God just doesn't have a sense of time. The question's actually bigger than that. So the next verses expand upon this, the sense that perhaps God's timing is, is difficult for us to endure. It says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. The question here before the psalmist is not just one of being ignored by God. It's a recognition that he is standing under the judgment of God, under the wrath of God, and wondering whether God's wrath will relent before his death. Wrath is not a trait of God that we often want to dwell on. It came out in the Old Testament reading and in the New Testament reading that we had today. Both discussed the wrath of God. And honestly, in those passages where we look at the wrath of God as an attribute of who he is, sometimes when we say the word of the Lord, we respond with thanks be to God. It feels hard to say even. That Zephaniah reading in particular, when we listen to that, and it's just a, it's, it's a, this picture of God's wrath and judgment upon the earth, and we say thanks be to God, and there's a little bit of discord in there of feeling that. But sin has marred God's creation, and he looks upon it with anger. Wrath is part of his nature because he is a holy God, because he is completely good, and he will not suffer his world to be marred forever. Sin will be judged and ultimately destroyed. And on the one hand, this is good news because we need him to destroy sin. We need him to set things right. We would desire everlasting peace and justice, and that cannot happen in a world in which there is still sin. But of course, the problem comes that on the other hand, we ourselves are still sinful beings. Both as individuals and as communities, our sins are plainly evident to God. And we, at times, fall under his judgment including those of us here in the church. At times we fall under the wrath of God. In fact, God promises that he will not withhold punishment from those he loves. But for how long? 
Is this all we will ever know of him? Because that would not be good news. When I send my kids to time out when they've acted up, you would think that five minutes of sitting still is an eternity. That I'm asking something of them that is far too much for them to endure. Similarly, the psalmist points out that 70 years of punishment, which is the length of the Babylonian exile. You know, he's talking about perhaps the span of days of a, of a human life, but also looking perhaps at how long does punishment last? How long will God's wrath endure? And the people of Israel were exiled for 70 years. And it's a literal lifetime for those who are involved. Can an eternal God, somebody whose, whose scale of time is so much different than ours, even understand the magnitude of his judgment upon frail human beings? Or are we so far beneath him that we, he can't even relate to our experience? This is part of what the psalmist is asking. I said earlier that there are two questions when we cry out for God to help us. Can he help us and will he help us? The psalmist is wrestling now with that second question. Does God understand what we are going through? Does he see and know the weight of sorrow and despair that we experience? And does he even care? If you are suffering personally, or if you're looking out at this broken world and wondering where God is in the midst of all of this, then you need to know that it is okay to bring your questions before God. I can remember once when I was being punished as a kid, um, I was told to go to my room or something, and I yelled back at my father that, you don't even care about me. Um, and at the time, he got really quiet, and I was pretty sure he was angry at me. Um, it wasn't exactly the most respectful response in the moment. Um, and so I kind of assumed and learned going forward that that was not a good accusation to level in the midst of punishment. But God is different. The psalmist give voice to the fact that while we are under the wrath of God, we are allowed, permitted, even encouraged to lift our voices up to him, even in accusation, and say, God, how long? How long will this last? I don't know if I can endure this. They allow us to ask the question of God, do you actually care? Here. And if so, why aren't you doing something about it? And this isn't just so that we can get things off our chest and, and lash out, feel better about being angry. When we bring our real, sincere emotions before God, that allows us to be changed. The next two verses in this psalm say, Who considers the, ra who considers the power of your anger? and your wrath according to the fear of you. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. There are two reminders in these verses for us here. First, that we should consider the wrath of God. When we desire to sin and turn from him, we should understand that there will be consequences, that there is judgment for sin. Again, I can look to parenting to understand this. There are times when I have to remind my daughters that if they persist in the direction that they are headed, there will be consequences. My kids hate the word consequences. They, they know that that means that something is coming. 
Sometimes they even change their behavior when they remember that. Not always. That's true of us too, though, isn't it? When we sit underneath God's wrath, we know that there are consequences for our sin. And contemplating that, understanding that, remembering that, that we too are children of a Father who loves us and will discipline us when we go astray, can help us to better understand God. It can lead us into wisdom. But there's more to this reminder to consider God's wrath than just a avoid punishment. When we remember that we are frail beings and that God is eternal, his judgment that seems to last so long is really only a short moment in the scope of eternity. The wrath of God is not his ultimately defining characteristic. Not in the Old Testament and not in the New Testament. It's real and it's present, but it is not the end. We, uh, when we read the psalm together, we didn't read the last few verses. We cut things short a little bit. So listen to the last few verses now. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, your hesed, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. And for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of, our Lord, of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Here's the shift to hope. It's not complete yet. But the psalmist has hope that it is God's love that will ultimately endure. That his wrath is only for a time, but his love endures forever. For those who love and follow him, this is the truth. This is our hope that we rest in. His love endures forever. The days of our rejoicing will far outnumber the days of our sorrow, because his love endures forever. The psalmist leaned on this truth with a plaintive cry to God. He hasn't seen it yet in his experience. He's asking, make us glad. Let your work be shown. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. But he's asking with hope because he knows who God is. That he is a God of steadfast love. That he has promised for his people. And he will keep his promises. And because he knows the character of God... He's willing and able to endure in the midst of his suffering. He's able to wait a little longer. If you right now are feeling the weight of God's judgment, or just the sorrow of brokenness in our world, I encourage you, wait a little longer. Like the psalmist, we can have hope. God's love will prevail. But we also know more than the psalmist does. The, the Old Testament ends really on the ultimate cliffhanger. They're waiting to see how are these promises going to be fulfilled. Psalm 89 makes perfect sense from their perspective. How can David's kingdom, this promise that David's kingdom is going to last forever, how can this come true when David's kingdom is lost? It's dashed. Everything has been taken away. 
But we see things in a new light because we have seen Jesus. Jesus is the one who steps in in the line of David and assumes a reign that will last forever. When we remember that he has ascended into heaven, this is what we are proclaiming. The reign of Jesus lasts forever. Moreover, we know that God has become man. So we know with certainty that he understands our plight. There is no question of does God understand what it means that we live for 70 years and then fall away. Because he walked as a man on earth. He has identified with us. He has stepped into our sorrow himself, where he has taken that sorrow upon himself, even unto death on a cross. Willing to walk through sorrow for the joy that was set before him, because he knows and trusts in the steadfast love of the Lord. Willing to endure the wrath of God, because he knows that ultimately, in the end, it is the love of God that will prevail, and he is displaying that love for us. This is our hope. This is why we can endure. This is why we can bring the fullness of our emotion to God. This is why we can look at the wrath of God upon this world, that we can look at the judgment of God upon ourselves, and we can say, I will turn to praise and I will love you because you have loved us first. Jesus pointed to himself over and over again as the fulfillment of the law and as the fulfillment of the Psalms in particular. The psalmist caught a glimpse of what could be, a glimmer of hope that the steadfast love of God would endure. And in Jesus, we see that in its fullness. And so, when you suffer, and if you're not suffering now, you will suffer, when you walk in darkness and you can't see what God is doing, when things don't make sense around you, look to Jesus. Cling to him as the symbol of God's steadfast love, the reminder that he loves us so deeply that he would even die for us, that he knows our plight, and that he has invited us into an eternal and everlasting kingdom. The wrath of God is for the night, but his love endures forever. Amen. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.